is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 177, covering the week of July 8th through July 12th, 2019. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If you don't want to search for all those social media accounts on your own, just go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see all our social media buttons. You'll also see our Amazon Smile button. Just click on that. If you want to support the Institute while you shop at Amazon, you can make us your preferred nonprofit organization. So click on that button, shop at Amazon, and help support the Abbeville Institute. While you're there, also give us an email address, and we'll give you a free ebook. And you can also get our Daily Dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday. So it's win-win. You get a free ebook and you get great content daily during the week. You can support the Abbeville Institute by going to abbevilleinstitute.org where it says uh, support at the top of the page. Click on that. You'll see donor options. Under that, you'll find that you can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time donation. All of those donations are tax deductible to the full extent of the law. And that does help us uh, keep the podcast going, keep the website going, help us with our conferences and other projects that we are working on behind the scenes. We do have some things that we are doing, uh, but they just have not been made public yet. So that does help all of those things. And of course, it'll help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition together. Uh, also, don't forget that uh, you can get your Abbeville Institute apparel. If you enter that uh, button that says uh, support, just click on that shop tab. And you can get your embroidered Abbeville Institute apparel. So it's we've got uh, golf shirts, uh, t-shirts, hats, all kinds of great stuff. So you can support the Institute and advertise for the Institute as well just by getting that Abbeville Institute apparel. It's a great way to show that you like what we do. Okay, all of that said, let's talk about the week that was at the Abbeville Institute. Uh, we had uh, an interesting week, I think, um, some eclectic material, but... I actually want to start uh, this particular week looking at uh, the piece on Thursday, The War Power is All Power. Now, this is going to actually bridge into the piece on Wednesday that they work together. And same thing actually with the piece on Friday. Uh, all these pieces work in that what we saw at the end of the war, even during the war itself, was an expansion of federal power. Uh, there's little doubt that uh, the Lincoln administration was expanding the role of the general government during the war. And, of course, that carried forward into Reconstruction and then into modern era. But one of the things that Lincoln did that was um, unique, and this comes down to the Emancipation Proclamation, and Benjamin Robbins Curtis, who was an abolitionist Supreme Court justice, uh, warned against doing emancipation the way that Lincoln did it because what Lincoln said, essentially, is that if I, if I have to best subdue the enemy, I can do whatever I want. Um, so by doing that, by issuing the Emancipation Proclamation under a war power position, he was opening the door for future presidents to do whatever they wanted in a time of war. See, Curtis supported abolition. He supported that part uh, of uh, potentially the, uh, the result of the war. But he did not support the way that Lincoln was doing it because he understood that if you do this through executive power, then that means in the next war, what's to say you can't destroy some civil liberty? What's to say you can't destroy some vestige of the government? Because um, it is simply using the war power and, uh, as a means to an end. 
And he was right about that. But other people warned against this as well. One of them was Samuel Cox of Ohio. And Samuel Cox is often castigated because uh, he's considered one. He was First of all, he's a copperhead during the war. Uh, so that's one reason why people don't often like to uh, cite Samuel Cox. But also, uh, he made, I mean, look, he was a he man of his times. Uh, he made uh, he made racist statements, uh, but so did Abraham Lincoln. So I mean, that's that's not a reason to discount what somebody has to say about something else, right? I mean, we can say, well, he's he's wrong on this issue or he's wrong on this issue, but look at this. Look at what he's saying about this. He's right about this. Now, I think some of these attacks on Samuel Cox are made just out of I mean, those those kind of charges are simply anti-intellectual. I mean, if you're if we're going to do that, then we can't really cite anybody before, say, 1975. But regardless, um, we can do it with Lincoln. We can say, well, yeah, Lincoln said that, but he's wrong about that. But look at all these great things he said. But Samuel Cox, no, 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 we can't do that with Samuel Cox. So Samuel Cox um, was clear about using the war power and what that meant uh, for the future of the Constitution. Now, he was doing this, he was saying these things, uh, in 1864, with the creation of the Freedmen's Bureau, and um, he was against it. Now he didn't say he was against it because he didn't want to help freedmen. He was against it because they were using the war power to create the Freedmen's Bureau, which was an unconstitutional move, right? I mean, he's saying we have a job as members of Congress to defend the Constitution. If we start doing things that are unconstitutional, what are we doing? But you see, by this point, it really didn't matter anymore. The Republican Party, the Lincoln administration, had already determined that they were going to do whatever they wanted to do, no matter what the Constitution said. And even some leftist scholars admit this. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, Jonathan Turley points out that, yeah, I mean, the Lincoln administration was horrible on the Constitution. Uh, you have, uh, there was a actually a very interesting uh, conference with Jonathan Turley and Jennifer Weber, who wrote, uh, the book Copperheads. Now, Jennifer Weber is very critical of all these people, but she does at least admit that what was happening with the Lincoln administration, you could say that these people were right about the fact that the Lincoln administration was horribly abusing the Constitution. So even if we disagree with what these people had to say, and Lincoln himself, from a 21st century perspective on race relations, we can still point out that what they were saying about other issues, they were 100% correct about. Uh, and we have to be very suspicious that the, the summit, the, the conference was about uh, the use, the abuse of civil liberties in wartime. And I think even leftist scholars are coming around to the position that, oh, well, I mean, yeah, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln wasn't really good on these things. Uh, he was, uh, there's even the, uh, the Blair book with malice towards some. I mean, here's Blair. He was, a, he's a professor at uh, Penn State, I think. Uh, admitting that, well, I mean, yeah, Lincoln wasn't necessarily 100% accurate when he said with malice toward none. We know that he was malice toward some. Now, his book is interesting that he kind of, he, he sides with Lincoln on, on um, and the Republicans on what they could do, what traitors were. He basically says Southerners were traitors, um, which is incorrect. But the, the fact is, um, he is uh, certainly... Uh, in agreement that there were some things going on in the Lincoln administration that weren't necessarily above the board when it came to the Constitution and abusing civil liberties. So um, that's important. You see, the war is transitional. The war is transformative. And unfortunately, what you have now is this debate 
within modern political discourse. It's a really stupid debate. But who are the good guys? Who are the, are the Republicans the good guys? Are the Democrats the good guys? Are the old Republicans the good guys and now they're the bad guys? Are the old Democrats the good guys and now they're the bad guys? I mean, we're, who are the bad and good guys, right? And uh, you have people like David Barton or Dinesh D'Souza or uh, Glenn Beck um, or um, uh, Bill O'Reilly. These people run around and they essentially say, look, the Republican Party of the 1860s is the current Republican Party. And so uh, we, should, we should promote that Republican Party of the 1860s. Now, first of all, I tend to agree that the Republican Party really hasn't changed much. And I know that makes people very upset when I say that. But when I say they really haven't changed much, they've always been a nationalist party um, in that they support a nationalist, a northern nationalist agenda. Now, northern nationalism in the 1850s was really sectionalism, um, but they've always been the same. Um, nothing much has changed. Now, you can look at the rank and file and say, well, maybe the rank and file currently uh, doesn't is not um, in line with, um, say, this, uh, this one people agenda from the 1860s. But maybe they are. I mean, I think that uh, the, the party has been very good in propaganda. As Clyde Wilson has pointed out, the Republican Party is an election machine. That's its, old, that's its sole objective, is to get elected. Principles don't matter, and they didn't matter then. Now, there were different Republicans in the party. I mean, this is also clear, and people have pointed this out as well. well I mean, you had, you had abolitionist Republicans, and then you had non-abolitionist Republicans. You had, uh, you had people that uh, were former Democrats getting in the party just because they were interested in, in preserving the Union. Uh, and then you had staunch Republicans from the 1850s when, when the party was formed. So you had all kinds of people. It's a big party. But I would say that the party really hasn't changed much since uh, the 1860s. In particular, that it's it's never really been interested in preserving the Constitution. It's only interested in election and electoral power. Um, it's only interested in its own economic muscle. It's a political party. So uh, when you look at this particular position of Dinesh D'Souza, where he says, well, the Republicans, one of the things that he says is just so silly. No Republicans ever owned slaves. We know this is simply not true. Even lefties like Kevin Cruz. See, Kevin Cruz is doing it because he doesn't, he, uh, he doesn't like Dinesh D'Souza. Kevin Cruz is a professor at Princeton University. He doesn't like Dinesh D'Souza, and um, he's pointing out the inconsistencies of Dinesh D'Souza because he wants to make Dinesh D'Souza look silly. But by doing so, what he's essentially admitting is that there's no righteous cause. Uh, you see, these Republican propagandists want to point to a righteous cause myth that the war was all about slavery and ending slavery. It was from the beginning. It's always been that. It's just that it, it, Lincoln was hiding that agenda, but he was really against slavery and he was going to end slavery through the war. We know that's not true. Lincoln himself admitted it wasn't true. We know that there were thousands and thousands of Union soldiers who marched off to war, not, not going to war to end slavery but going to war to preserve the Union. I mean, that's what the war was about, preserving the Union. It only became a war aim in 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation, and only then for two reasons. One, to keep foreign powers out of the war, and the other to potentially cause disruption in the South, because Lincoln and everyone else knew that the Southern economy was still being supported, or at least uh, in, in large part, not maybe... I mean, there, number of, of slave owners was very small, but certainly the Southern economy was still being uh, benefit was still benefiting from the activities of slaves. 
And so if you can incite slave insurrection, which Lincoln had to back off, right? I mean, he, he initially said this is what his aim was. And then he backed off of that because there are people, wait, 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 wait here. That's inhumane. You can't do that because all the people that are there are going to be women and children. All the men are all fighting for the most part. So you're going to incite insurrection. And these, you're just going to have women and children killed in that. So Lincoln backed off of that slightly. But the point was to create domestic unrest in the South, to make it hard if, if there was domestic unrest, so maybe these soldiers would have to go back home to try to put that problem down, and then they can't fight. So he's trying to make the war effort difficult for the South. And of course, we know that if the Confederacy is actually an independent entity, which it was, it was de facto independent, that the Emancipation Proclamation had no impact. We know the Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply to Maryland or Delaware or Kentucky. We know it didn't. It only applied to the states in rebellion. So Delaware, for example, did not end slavery until December of 1865. Uh, we, know this, we know all this information, but you have these individuals on the left and the right who promote this false righteous cause narrative. So this is the main problem with, with these Republicans. I mean, on other issues, yeah, I mean, fine. They can be, they can be right on other things. Look, Dinesh D'Souza can be funny sometimes. Uh, David Barton can be uh, interesting at times when he talks about some things. Uh, all these people can be right about some things. But when they get into this, which is really in so many ways the most important part of American history, because you see the South in 1861 was fighting for the original federal republic, the idea that you have self-determination. And simply by saying you can't leave, you destroyed that original union. The union... I agree. The Union died. I mean, there's an argument made, well, if the South leaves, the Union's dead. Well, the, the, the Union died when Lincoln decided to invade. The Union still existed, and James Byard of Delaware pointed this out. Who was Delaware was still in the Union. He's saying, look, we still have a government. We still have financial houses. We still have an army and navy. All that stuff is still here. The Union is not destroyed. We just don't have a few states in it. It's no different than it was before. The opponents of that position will say, well, yeah, if the South left, though, they could, people could do it again. Well, that's true. They could. But, I mean, where is your recourse? If the general government starts acting obnoxiously and passes unconstitutional legislation, which they're doing during the war, well, then what recourse do you have? You just have to suck it up and take it? Uh, and this is, a main this is an important question to ask when it comes to the role of federalism. Now, we can debate whether secession was right in 1860 or 61, whether that was the right move to make. I mean, all these questions are open for debate historically, ideologically. They're all open for debate. But the fact is, by simply invading the South, by sending troops into the South to keep the South in the Union, for whatever reason, you destroyed the Constitution. You destroyed the... This is why the Upper South seceded. Because they were not going to allow a state to be coerced for simple self-determination, without a declaration of war. They weren't going to allow it to happen. So um, I think this argument of the Republican Party good, the Democrat Party bad, I mean, it's just so, it's, it's so juvenile and silly, really. I mean, we can point out good and bad in everything. Um, and to just to try for political reasons to say, well, you know, the Republicans were always this one, and, and roll off these things like, this is really going to persuade people to vote Republican doesn't persuade anybody to vote Republican. I mean, okay, the Republican Party was that. So what? Um, did they do it? Did they, did they follow the Constitution? 
Well, we know they didn't. So, I mean, if we're going to say that as quote-unquote conservatives, we need to follow the Constitution, if that's what your position, if you're a conservative and you want to follow that, well, then you need to really think long and hard about activities that are unconstitutional. And that's a simple, simple statement. So, um, this is this is why people like D'Souza and others are problematic. It's why this Republican Party is problematic. It's why the Republican Party um, has always been an election machine. I mean, the Democrat Party's been the same thing, so it's not that the Democrat Party's any better. But you have these two major parties that their job is to get people elected. This is what they do. So... Um, when you look at the founding period and then you move forward and you look at founding principles, self-determination was clearly one of them. And this is why when uh, you look at uh, the piece on Friday, Dabney's warning for uh, the uh, Dabney's warning for the New South by Zachary Garris. This is a, a, a reworked introduction to his uh, from his book, uh, Dabney on Fire. I, I applaud Zachary Garris for putting this out because simply by promoting, Dabney, you're going to run into all kinds of charges that you're a bad guy because you think Dabney had something worthwhile to say. But again, this is this is uh, a, a logical fallacy. Um, but he's concerned about the effects of this left lurch um, following the war, and in particular, what the New South would do to uh, the post-bellum American society. As Garris says, Dabney's New South Address is a fascinating analysis of post-bellum change by one of the great intellects of the Old South, as he warned of the dangers of, dangerous outcomes of industrialization, universal suffrage, material prosperity, and the growth of big cities. So these are things the agrarians were talking about in the 1930s. What does industrialization do? It creates consumerism. Creates this constant grab for things. It get uh, it lessens the value of the person. It makes them an automaton. It does all kinds of things to people that have unintended consequences. Now, we can also point to the benefits, the material benefits, the comforts of industrialization. I, for one, wouldn't want to live without air conditioning. I know Dr. Livingston is completely against air conditioning. He says it ruins people. But I like air conditioning. Uh, so industrialization has brought that. Uh, it's brought better health care and other things. So we know there are some benefits from industrialization, but the way people have to work and maybe the effect on, on mental health and uh, the effect on physical health and other things, I mean, there are potentially some side effects, that, some unintended side effects and negative consequences for it. Uh, universal suffrage? I mean, this is a question that's never really asked anymore. Uh, and John Randolph of Roanoke brought up, but why is it that it's just good because more people vote? I mean, is it... Does that make the electorate better? Does it make the government better because more people vote? I mean, you could actually make a case that it makes it worse. If you look at Charles Sidnor and his, uh, his conclusion to his uh, book, American Revolutionaries in the Making, he points out that Virginia, which had less democracy than other states, actually had more liberty. And why is that? Well, because as you expand democracy, issues of, uh, let's say you've got two people that couldn't vote, right? And uh, they have a dispute. 
And the one guy doesn't like the other guy, and he doesn't like what he's doing. So now that those people can vote, now they're going to vote legislation that's going to prevent that one thing that one guy's doing from happening that wouldn't have been there before. So now you create more laws, and you create more bureaucracy and more regulation, and you do all these things. So what uh, what Sidney was saying, look, I mean, if you have people that are supremely committed to liberty, to their own liberty, then they're going to make sure that filters down to everyone else too. Now, of course, there are problems in Virginia, but the, we never ask these questions anymore. Just because you have more people voting, does it does it mean that you're going to have more liberty? Does it mean that your your government's going to be better just because more people vote? This is not even a question that uh, that uh, people are comfortable even bringing up because they're going to get painted with all kinds of nasty names. Uh, but it's a real question. Dabney was asking that question. What about material prosperity? Does having more things make you a better person? What about big cities? Are they good? Um, so these are all things that I think we need to, to ask about. And of course, he says that, look, Dabney was not critical. He prayed and hoped for the best. He said, our best prayer for you is that out of the present foul transition, a good providence may cause some new order to arise tolerable for honest men. The changes implied in the introduction to this new order must be accepted by me as inevitable. But the principles of truth and righteousness are as eternal as the divine legislator. Um, and he implored people to follow. I mean, look, he, Dabney, of course, is a minister. So he said, look, you need to follow the scriptures. And, and if you follow the scriptures, well, I mean, maybe you can have a guide uh, that you can live with this new system. So that's a really interesting uh, essay. And, of course, Dabney, an important part of Southern history and new Southern history. Uh, we need to read Dabney. And, I, I, again, I applaud Garris for, for taking the time to edit these essays and put them out in a, in a very easy-to-read volume uh, because it is something that um, more people need to read. And I know that um, people have purchased the book off of the information we've provided on the Abbeville Institute website. So at least you can read what Dabney's saying. And, uh, again, the, the position that uh, it's an anti-intellectual position simply to say, well, this guy's a, a, a racist, so I'm not going to read what he had to say. Why? I mean, maybe he had something valuable to say. We explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. So here's something that's valuable. I think, again, it's it's the most anti-intellectual thing. The left really is, or the, the progressives, whoever you want to, whatever you want to call them, that will just simply throw out these pejoratives. They are the most anti-intellectual people out there because they don't take anything seriously. Um, you know, on our side, I know a lot of people will read things that they don't agree with to try to find something. Look, Richard Weaver, for example, who's often a person that uh, we've, we've promoted on, uh, he's one of the earliest uh, 20th century uh, Southern intellectuals. Uh, he admired Abraham Lincoln. And uh, in Lincoln, certainly, uh, if you look at some things that happened with Lincoln's assassination, I mean, maybe Lincoln would have been better for the South uh, had he lived. Uh, we don't know because that's all conjecture. But uh, Weaver admired Lincoln uh, for a lot of reasons. But, I mean, so people in our, on our side tend to be, I think, a little more intellectually curious and interested in things that are uh, maybe not uh, in the mainstream, but they want to know. And they want to read these other, they want to read Lincoln. They want to know Lincoln because they want to, to uh, find out what Lincoln really had to say. But then they're, they're looking at Lincoln critically. So is Lincoln right about these things or not? 
It's not that they're not going to read Lincoln. It's just they're going to ask the questions. Is he right about these things or not? And not just take it because Lincoln said it, it's right. Uh, one of the things, you know, look, with, with people like D'Souza and Barton and others and Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh and, and mainstream voices, which a lot of you know people will, if they're on the conservative side, they listen to these people first. This is, this is kind of like their gateway into these things. And then if they're intellectually curious, they go deeper. And that's when they really come around to things like uh, Dabney and others because they say, okay, well, there's something more to this. And then they start going down the rabbit hole. And that's when they get to these things. Uh, I know Mike Church um, has said this. I mean, everyone starts out as a neoconservative. Everyone does if you're going to go to that side of the political spectrum. Everyone starts there. And then you do more reading and you realize, wait a second here, these people are wrong about some things. Um, and that's generally what happens. So, again, I applaud Garris for putting this out because people need these things. Now, uh, that said, you also have a book review on Tuesday, No Dixie, No America by Jerry Sawyer. And he's, uh, this is a book, uh, he's reviewing the book Conserving America by Patrick uh, Denning. And... Um, Denning is not necessarily, uh, he, he's, um, he gets into where his position is on conservatism and populism and these other things. But one of the things I like about this particular review uh, is that Sawyer says, look, um, uh, he says, uh, and he says, quote, in short, to envision an alternative future, we must first summon the nerve to radically and candidly rethink America's historical pieties. To be sure, unionists are still free to insist that the war between the states was a necessary evil. But at the very least, they will sooner or later have to give more attention to the evil part, especially given the extent to which Mr. Lincoln's revolutionary crusade for the Union resembled the Italian and German wars of unification. This is what you have to understand. Yeah, I mean, he's saying, you can say the war was good, but what did the war bring? They brought the centralization you so much dislike. Um, so was it, was it a good thing long-term? Did it open up a Pandora's box that can never be closed? And in that, we're just going to have to suffer from it. So is Lincoln really, did he really conserve anything? Did Lincoln, did, when conservatives say we love Abraham Lincoln, he's one of us, he's conservative. What did he conserve? He certainly didn't conserve the original constitution. He certainly didn't conserve the founders federal republic. He didn't conserve any of that. Now, we can say that Lincoln was interested in maybe a conservative party after the war. He was going to do some things. We know Lincoln wasn't necessarily 100% committed to abolition and, and uh, immediate abolition. He was willing to postpone it. Um, there were all kinds of, of uh, uh, give and take in Lincoln's positions. But um, what did he actually conserve? And I think this is an important question that we all have to ask. You have to ask of Lincoln Scott, what did he conserve? What was Lincoln conserving? And if they, a lot of times they'll say, well, he's conserving the founding, founding principles. He was? Really? Are you sure about that? And of course, they're going to point to the Declaration of Independence, which uh, Mel Bradford has completely chewed up his position on that. And uh, Joseph Ellis was even, even Joseph Ellis in the most famous book ever written on the Declaration. Um, and the Gettysburg Address, I should say, which is what he's really getting into points out that Lincoln was making up history. There's no way the two can be compared. Joseph Ellis, who is not a, uh, a right-wing scholar, he, say, he even said Bradford knew what he was doing 
but he did it anyways, knowing that it was going to cost his career. But he was essentially right about this. He was right about this. Lincoln was making things up with the Declaration. So um, I, I find it fascinating uh, how, how conservatives try to attach conservatism to Lincoln. You just really can't do it. And finally, the piece on, on Monday, Anoki from Muskogee. This is a fun little piece. It was just a cultural piece. Uh, Timothy Duskin wrote this and um, about how we have the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. and then you. But it's also the 50th anniversary of Merle Haggard's Okie from Muskogee, which was kind of the uh, conservative uh, counter-reaction to the uh, to the hippie movement, right? So you have Merle Haggard out there, um, uh, Okie from Muskogee, and he talks about how Oklahoma was a very conservative, still is a very conservative state, um, and this was uh, a, this was a, an anthem for those that didn't like what was happening in the '60s, and it became a very popular uh, anti-hippie tune. Um, so. This was uh, an important part of the history of the 1960s. It's a Southern reaction to, uh, to the pop culture of the 60s. Now, uh, I think that the hippie movement is a little bit overblown um, and uh, how important it was at the time. Most Americans were like Merle Haggard. They weren't like the hippies in California. But, of course, the hippies get all the interest because of uh, popular music and pop culture. And they were the oddity. And so they're all over the media but there were more people in America like Merle Haggard in, in 19, uh, 1969 than uh, Janis Joplin. Uh, so um, it's important to, to realize that and that how popular this song was. He points out this was a number one hit in, in 1969. Okie from Muskogee reached number one on the Billboard magazine Hot Country Singles Chart on November 15th. It remained there for four weeks. It was also number 41 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. So this is a number one hit. Um, of course, as he points out, Haggard eventually backtracked and went back. But regardless, this was popular because people thought these things. So only Pop culture only becomes popular when people think about it. I mean, this is what people are, yeah, I like that. This is, this is what I think about things, too. So... Um, I think it's, again, Southern tradition. Where does this come from? It comes from something, it comes from a real place, Muskogee, Oklahoma, which, of course, Muskogee, Oklahoma is, is from the Muskogee-speaking peoples out of Georgia, right? So, uh, but, you know, you had all the five civilized tribes there, and uh, they, of course, many of them supported, uh, not all of them, but many of them supported the Confederacy, and you had this very interesting dynamic uh, with that, with that particular part of of the uh, of the country and the Confederacy allowing them a non-voting position, in the Congress. So you have this this entirely interesting part of the war um, and that very conservative culture in Oklahoma, which is still there. I mean, Oklahoma is still a very conservative state. Um, some would say even maybe more of a southern state still than than anything else. But regardless, um, I think this piece is interesting because it really fits into this. Uh, idea of you know what's what's good, what's bad, where where do we draw the line? Republicans, Democrats, how do we do all this stuff? And and what is the what is the effect of Lincoln's war long term? I mean, would we still have had the hippie movement without uh, the uh, the war in eighteen sixty one? I don't know. I mean, this is all historical inference. Would have happened that way? Uh, we, we we the war power. This all ties into the war power. The hippies were an expression, uh, a, a in some ways, an outgrowth of the Vietnam War. So if we didn't have the war power as all power, would we have had the Vietnam War? Would we have had American imperialism like we did? 
without that war? We'll never know. But certainly, uh, that all it all goes back to that. And then would we have had an, would we have needed an Okie from Muskogee if we didn't have the Vietnam War and the hippies and everything else that came out of that? We, and and uh, Dabney was saying these are the things that are coming. So and we got it with the hippie movement. So all these things work together, and I, I like how you can kind of piece all this stuff together. History can be a great big puzzle. All of it works. And um, you know you can't look at Okie from Muskogee without fully understanding all the other parts that led up to that. So. Hope you enjoyed this week at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day.